We have all had moments of being very late to the party on something in the pop culture zeitgeist. Well, unless you've just always been super cool. And maybe you have, but me, not so much. For instance, prior to preparing for this episode, I have literally never interacted with the Pretty Little Liars franchise. Never. That's right, listeners. Never watched the show, never read the books, Never. But all of that changed for episode 143 because my guests and I are chatting about the first title in the series, which is called, of course, Pretty Little Liars. Written by Sarah Shepard, Pretty Little Liars was published in 2006. The series would ultimately include 16 books and two additional companion novels. Many of these books would appear on the New York Times bestseller list. The TV series based on the books premiered on ABC Family in 2010. Pretty Little Liars follows four friends, Spencer Hastings, Hannah Marin, Arya Montgomery, and Emily Fields, as they navigate life after the disappearance of their queen bee, Alison De Laurentiis. In the first book in the series, we get to know the main players, which is how we approach this episode as well. You'll hear my guests and I chat about Spencer, Hannah, Arya, and Emily, and how their individual arcs inform the book as a whole. We also spend a lot of time chatting about how those individual arcs are pretty problematic through our 2021 lens. We talk about the predatory nature of many of the male-female relationships in the story. You'll hear me use the word predatorial over and over again too, and I'm honestly not sure that that's a word. Sorry. We also discuss the way Pretty Little Liars depicts power imbalances, queerness, slut-shaming, race and racism, eating disorders, and interactions with the police. We cover a lot of ground here. I'm going to note a trigger warning here as we mention eating disorders, self-harm, and relationship violence in this episode. Unfortunately, the author takes a lot of serious issues very lightly in this book, and my heart goes out to anyone who is affected and hurt by this casual, flippant approach. My guest for episode 143 is Joya Goffney. Joya grew up in New Waverly, a small town in East Texas. In high school, she challenged herself with to-do lists full of risk-taking items, like hug a random boy and eat a cricket, which inspired her debut novel, Excuse Me While I Ugly Cry. Excuse Me While I Ugly Cry hits shelves the day this episode goes live, so go get yourself a copy at bookshop.org slash shop slash SSRpod or wherever books are sold. Joya has a passion for black social psychology and moved out of the countryside to attend the University of Texas in Austin, where she still resides. Learn more about Joya at joyagoffney.com and follow her on Twitter at joya underscore goffney and on Instagram at joya.goffney. Thank you, Joya, for joining me for this episode and congratulations on the release of your first book. The whole SSR community is behind you. If you want to get more involved in the SSR community, you should definitely start with social media. You can find the show at SSRpod on Instagram and Twitter and by searching the SSR Podcast or the SSR Podcast community on Facebook. We kicked off our May SSR book clubs last week as well. Our incredible volunteer co-leads are facilitating discussions about The Sisterhood of the Traveling Pants and The Westing Game, and it's not too late to join in. Sign up for the SSRBC for free at ssrpodcast.com slash ssrbookclub or at the link in SSR's Instagram bio. Are you loving the show? I'm so glad. It would be so cool of you to help me spread the word about SSR because, let's be honest, the more, the merrier. Leaving a five-star rating or review is a great way to go, but you can also spread the love on social media. Take a screenshot of this episode wherever you're listening to it, yes, like right now, and post it to your Instagram story. Leave a note about what you're doing while you listen and tag me at SSRpod so I can see. Your social shares help our SSR family grow. You can take an even more active role in supporting the podcast by joining SSR's Patreon community. With Patreon, you can support independent creators and the things they make for just a few dollars a month in exchange for exclusive rewards. You can come on board as an SSR Patreon patron for as little as a dollar per month. SSR Patreon perks include input on book selection, monthly newsletters, bonus episodes, invites to Patreon Zoom parties, monthly video reading recaps, SSR merch, and more. Trust me, it's a lot of fun, and I would love to share these perks with you. Visit www.patreon.com slash ssrpodcast, or go to www.ssrpodcast.com and click support at the top of the page for more details. Thank you so much to all of the patrons tuning into this episode. As always, I would love to give a shout out to my friends at Libro FM, who give us the opportunity to support independent bookstores when we shop for audiobooks. 
Last week, Libro.fm made a big splash for Independent Bookstore Day, which was a ton of fun. SSR listeners can get a discount on their first audiobook purchase from Libro.fm. Go to Libro.fm, that's L-I-B-R-O dot F-M, and use code SSRPOD when prompted on the site to get a two-month audiobook membership for the price of just one month. Now let's go to the show. Welcome to the SSR Podcast. You may recognize SSR as an elementary school era abbreviation for silent sustained reading, but if you don't, that's okay. What it stands for here is Shit She Read. Each week, we'll crack the binding on an old school read written for kids or teens and talk about it from a kind of grown-up perspective. We'll obsess over heartthrobs, relive the frustrations of middle school, and say an occasional WTF to a beloved author. If we haven't met yet, I'm your host, Ali Hofkosik, freelance writer, lifelong bookworm, and lover of anything covered in rainbow sprinkles. So find your favorite reading spot and a glass of wine. We're about to revisit some literary throwbacks right here on the SSR Podcast. Hi, Joya. Welcome to SSR. Hi. Okay, this is a big moment for me. Not to make it about me. I'm like really not trying to make it about me because today is your book birthday, which we will discuss. But again, I'm making it about me a little bit because can you believe that I have never in my whole 30 years interacted with the Pretty Little Liars franchise before. I cannot believe that. Honestly, I can't. <laughs> like, where have I been living? Where have you been living? I, I don't know. But I want to know what your relationship with Pretty Little Liars is. And then I'll try to explain, like, maybe why I missed all of this. Okay. So um, I think I first read this book somewhere around um, eighth grade or ninth grade. So it was kind of a on the upper end of... I, I would think the age range, but I, I liked the premise. I don't know that I liked the writing so much, but um, there's like 16 books, I think, in this series. I think I got to about two or three. You like dipped your toe and you're like, I'm good. Yeah. Like, this is a cool idea, but, but then there was a, uh, the show came out and I, oh my God, I watched that show probably two times through. I can't I can't say that no because I don't think I got to like the last season because it started to get a little crazy but mm. um I rewatched this show probably two or three times it was just like home for me it was weird but I loved the show more than the book definitely I do feel like I've been hearing that a lot because I posted on my SSR Instagram that I was reading the book and I admitted that I had no experience with anything pretty little liars and people were sort of mad at me um <laughs> people were like what the hell? Like, how how could you have betrayed us like this? Yeah. How do you have no idea what's happening with this? And everybody, well, not everybody, but a lot of people were like, oh my gosh, this show, like just thinking about this show yeah. gives me so many feelings. And I'm reading the TV tie-in edition, which like, I don't love an adaptation tie-in. Like, I don't love, you know, like a, a screenshot from a movie or a show or like, this seems like it might be like the um, like the TV poster from Pretty Little Liars. I like a classic cover. Yeah. But as I'm reading the TV tie-in edition, everybody was like, oh my gosh, these girls, I remember them, like Lucy Hale. Mm -hmm. I remember watching this with my mom when I was home from college. So I do think you're not alone in loving the show. So I, I did know that Pretty Little Liars was a thing. Maybe I'm like selling myself short as far as my like pop culture knowledge because I, I, I live in the world and I knew that it was out there. The first book was published in 2006 and I was 16. So I'm older than you. And I feel like at this point in my life, like when I was 16, I just like wasn't super into these kinds of teen series. I sort of dabbled in Gossip Girl a little bit, but I think I think even Gossip Girl I had like set aside by the time I was 16 and I was reading more adult books. Also at that time, like I think YA was sort of still in its infancy as a category. Yeah. And so like it wasn't really – I didn't even really know to look in YA shelf when I was 16 because there just – there wasn't that much there. So I feel like I sort of fell in maybe a weird age group with it. And then when the show came out in 2010, I was 20 and I don't think we had cable in college and – I just like wasn't an ABC family gal, now freeform, I know. So yeah, it just kind of missed me. Although now that I've read the first book and I've heard everybody's rave reviews about the series, I'm like, I really hope it's on Hulu because I feel like I need to figure out what all the fuss with the show is about. Yeah, I think it's on HBO. I started, I tried to rewatch after reading it and that didn't go so well. <laughs> really? Yeah, I, I think I actually at this point have, outgrown the show I, I can't I can't I just can't <laughs> oh wow okay wow we're already getting into it I'm so excited so 
Talk a little bit about why you wanted to revisit the book. Like, were there things that you were curious to revisit? Like, do you remember that you loved certain aspects and you sort of wanted to dip back in? I found in the last couple of months, for obvious reasons, a lot of my guests are really leaning toward like things that feel familiar um, when they're choosing their books. But it sounds like maybe you were like a little more unsure about what you were getting into. I guess I'm just curious, like what you were expecting and maybe what you were hoping to get from this experience. From like rereading it? Yeah. So... I did not expect to dislike it as much as I did. I did oh, not okay. expect that. I did not remember it being this problematic at all. I knew there were problematic as- aspects of it, but I did not realize it would be this triggering. <laughs> mm-hmm. So maybe you were expecting like more of a comfort read and it was not that. Yeah, I thought I could dive back in and be like, oh, this is great. My youth, yay. But no. No. My youth. My youth is gone. <laughs> yes. <laughs> it's gone. So again, let's situate ourselves in this world and then we'll dive into it. I can't wait to hear what you think. I really want to get to the root of your newfound hatred for this book. <laughs> again, it was published in 2006, written by Sarah Shepard. I discovered some interesting things about her. She is from the Philadelphia area. Fun fact, as a lot of listeners will know, I've been living in Philadelphia for about a year now. Um, And so it was actually kind of fun to like read from this setting because the main line, which is this like really upscale suburban area about 30 to 45 minutes outside of Philadelphia is really close to where I live. Um, And I have, I grew up not super far from here, certainly not in this kind of like a posh area, but I'm familiar with the kind of world that Sarah Shepard is building in this book. So that was kind of fun because I feel like similar series like Gossip Girl, or if we look at TV, like the OC, like those settings were so far removed from anything that I could have imagined when I was a teen. And so it was kind of fun to like find these girls in a suburb that felt a little bit more familiar to me. Mm -hmm. So that was cool. They live in the main line in a town called Rosewood. And Sarah Shepard is from a town called Downingtown, where another fun fact, I actually lived for a couple of years when I was a kid. Um, Again, making it about myself this whole episode, obviously. (laughs) And she worked for a couple of years for Time Publishing, um, as in Time Magazine, and then she worked as a ghostwriter for a couple of years before working on a series for Alloy Entertainment, and then they asked her to put together a series, which became Pretty Little Liars. And she she got an MFA, I believe, at Brooklyn College, and she talks in an interview about how she like never saw herself as a YA author. And I do think that like especially in the early aughts, there was more of a stigma about writing for kids than there is now. She talks in this interview about how like at that time she felt like a mark of success was writing adult fiction and now she can look back and sort of be like, no, like it was really cool that I wrote YA and I was able to establish this unique voice. But at that time in the early aughts and the mid aughts, that wasn't as much of an easy choice because there was some like clout associated with writing for adults strictly. So that's kind of interesting. She has since written an adult book. Um, And I'm glad that she acknowledges that it's super cool and very important to write YA. Mm -hmm. So yeah, this first book came out in 2006. She would go on to write a total of 16 Pretty Little Liars books plus two companion titles. So there are are 18 titles in this universe. And then she has a couple of other series. um, And then this adult thriller that I believe came out in 2018 or 2019. And I can include links to some of these interviews and some of these books in the show notes for this episode. But in Pretty Little Liars, the original title in the series, the original installment, we meet four girls. We meet Spencer, we meet Hannah, we meet Emily, and we meet Aria. And we sort of meet Allison, aka Allie. And I, I kind of think that like the best way to go about this, if, if you'll agree, Joya, is maybe to go character by character. When we cover these kinds of books on the podcast, that often is the best way in because so much happens when we're like rotating these perspectives and I think that's sort of like the best way to break it down in the hour that we have together what do you think yeah I agree definitely okay I'm gonna let you choose who do you want to talk about first let's see let's go with Spencer okay I love that because Spencer is my favorite how about you well I feel like I'm I should relate to her or I should be able to relate to her more than the rest because what with her like need to be the best and like academics and stuff like that I guess like I used to be like that when I was in school but I don't know I feel like I I don't know there's a disconnect 
with me and Spencer. Do you feel like a disconnect from all of them though? Because that's how I sort of feel. Like, yeah, I think I'm definitely. If we're gonna play the like Sex in the City game of like, are you a Carrie? Are you a Miranda? Are you a Charlotte? Are you a why am I blanking on Kim Cattrall's character? Even though she just bailed on Sex in the City, so maybe that's why. <laughs> why can't I remember her name? I can't well, help I'm not you. her. I, yeah, because I'm older than you. I'm clearly <laughs> not her. Clearly not her. But if we're gonna play that game with the Pretty Little Liars cast. Based on this book, I think I'm definitely a Spencer, but that does not mean that I think she is perfect and there are definitely problematic elements to her arc in this book. Yeah, I think I, yeah, I definitely relate probably more to her than the rest of them, but I don't like her. (laughs) She brings, she sort of illuminates maybe parts of ourselves that we like don't love. Yeah. I feel like the things that she does in this book are, things that like maybe I would do if I was if I were like acting as my worst self at times yeah definitely like I guess specifically I could sympathize with her during the barn scene or whenever she's giving the barn away to her sister and her parents are like just you know Melissa she needs the barn why don't you give it to her, Spencer? You know, I love that voice. Great voice acting. Are you are you reading your own audiobook? Because if not, they should call it. No, <laughs> I know. I'm so proud. Um, so yeah, I could relate to her during that scene. That was so painful. But when she says that she, the way that she reacted to that was to get with her sister's boyfriend at the time, Ian. And it was like the way that it was written, it was so purposeful and vengeful and nasty. She's like, oh, Ian doesn't need to be with such a plain girl like my sister. So I kissed him. I don't know. It was it was so. (laughs) Yeah, well, she has a pattern of behavior. So Spencer is an overachiever. She does really well in school. She clearly has a lot of pressure from her parents to be the best at everything. Mm -hmm. And she has an older sister named Melissa who somehow manages to be even more perfect than she is, which is hard to imagine because Spencer seems pretty perfect. And she has a pattern because when we first meet the girls when they're in seventh grade, we get like I think just one chapter of them when they're in seventh grade when Allie is still in the picture. Mm -hmm. And we learn – we sort of get this sense that like she's been fooling around with Ian who at the time is Melissa's boyfriend. And Allie, who is the the holder of all of their secrets, seems to know more about all of this than everybody else. But later, when we when we flash forward to the narrative present and the girls are in high school, history sort of repeats itself because Spencer, in her frustration with Melissa, who continues and continues and continues to outdo her in every aspect, she finds herself drawn to Melissa's new boyfriend, whose name is Ren, and who honestly sounds super hot and cool. <laughs> but I really like... I wasn't sure how I was supposed to feel about Ren because I feel like Melissa is painted to be this really high strung, annoying, sort of all of the worst like caricatured kind of qualities of like a smart girl that I think we're thankfully moving away from now in narratives. Like I think that um, there was a tendency in decades gone by to portray like smart women as like know-it-alls and as like shrill. And I think we sort of like fall into that trap a little bit with Melissa. And she stands in contrast to Spencer, who is like still really smart and overachieving, but is also like still cool. And Ren is like too chill for her. Like I feel like that's what the author wants us to see. And so it's this notion that like Spencer is seeing him that way and she's like, oh well like he shouldn't be with somebody like that. Mm -hmm. But it gets like super inappropriate because Ren is moving into their family's house. By the way, I was so shocked that Spencer and Melissa's parents were like, sure, you guys can move in together. They have never even met Ren until they like all had dinner together and made this decision. That is wild. I mean, they do so many things that I don't understand, but that, yeah. Yeah, Spencer's parents are kind of the worst, yeah. but they seem like so conservative. And so when that happened, I was like, okay, this doesn't track at all with who they seem to be. Yeah. And so like, I just feel very conflicted about Ren because I feel like maybe we would be friends. Like I would want to hang out with him, but he he sort of comes on to Spencer too. Like he mm-hmm. keeps sort of showing up in these situations where she – only has a sports bra on or is like lathering herself up with Icy Hot because she has all these field hockey injuries. And his whole vibe is just pretty predatorial. I feel like he's preying on her, but 
And I don't know if it's just that this book was written in 2006. It feels like Sarah Shepard like doesn't know that Ren is predatorial and that he's a bad guy. Like it sort of feels like Sarah Shepard wants us to think that he's like this just sort of like mysterious older boy who is like inappropriate but still cool and sexy. But now I'm like, I don't feel that way at all. And it makes me a little uncomfortable that I'm not sure if the author had that intent. Yes, yes. There were so many moments during this whole book. Like, I mean, like literally each of these characters has a moment with an older boy. Mm -hmm. And I mean, we say that, but they're like 20s. And these kids, I mean, okay, so it's definitely different. The book in the in the um, show, the show, I think they're like 15 or 16. But in this book, they're in seventh grade, like I mean, in the beginning with um, Allie. So if we if we look at the scene with Spencer and Ian, Mm -hmm. she's she's in seventh grade. And I was really freaked out by by this one line. Um, I wrote it down. It says, he pressed her up against his passenger, passenger door. She didn't try to run away. Ugh. It, I'm uncomfortable. Right? So she didn't try to run away. If she had, then, like, if she, if she rejected his advances, then, you know, he'd be this predatorial creep. But because she was into it, it was okay. Yeah, it has power and balance written all over it too because she's in seventh grade. I don't remember exactly how much older Melissa is as compared to Spencer, but I have to believe that Ian is in like at least 10th or 11th grade. Yeah. He's significantly older than she is. He is presumably attractive. He's presumably well-liked. He probably has some like social capital with her parents because he's dating her sister. He's probably significantly bigger than she is. Like this is a very clear power imbalance. Mm -hmm. And this is, again, a child who is certainly in no position to give consent to an older boy, even if she thinks that she's like, quote, into him. And the power imbalance makes it all the more complicated. And so because this is happening when she's in seventh grade, it sets her up for really unhealthy and inappropriate behaviors. I think when she's when she's an older teen Mm -hmm. and uh it just made me the whole thing made me really uncomfortable because like like you said most of these girls if not all of them are in relationships or want to be in relationships with older men specifically throughout the course of the book and I'm pretty sure they that all of the men are over 18 and all of these girls are younger than 18 when this is going on but Ren just like made me feel extra uncomfortable because I was like I don't think I'm supposed to see this as creepy yeah and it, it so clearly is to me. And and maybe I'm just not picking up on some of the subtext that the author was trying to include to show that like she knew that it was creepy. But I also wonder if it's just a function of these like additional 14 years that have passed since the book was was published until now when we are realizing that like it doesn't matter like how much – like, like yeah. it doesn't matter how much chemistry you think you have with somebody. It doesn't matter like – how hot the whole thing seems like it's it's predatorial to have this kind of a relationship and like he is it it's just it just grossed me out and I I don't know if it grossed me out more like what was actually happening in the book or if it grossed me out more that like I wasn't supposed to see it as gross Mm, yeah exactly I I feel like we're not supposed to think that he's gross yeah but but then again an activity it was like an activity for these girls to go look for older guys. And so maybe she's like, maybe um, Sarah is, Sarah Shepard is trying to relate to the teen, to teenagers with, I don't know, do kids do that? I definitely didn't. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's not like she's the only one. I mean, we've been watching movies and watching TV shows and reading books forever about these kinds of like older boys. That's a trope, like yeah. a hot older guy in a high school rom-com is a trope because like people respond to it. And I, I think that we are moving away from it because we're all coming to understand like what this actually means in terms of power imbalance. But she's not, it's not like she was the first one to come up with this. She was just playing into tropes that had already been working. Yeah. So, but I didn't love it. And it made me sad because I really was in dispenser as a character and I felt for her as far as like the pressure she was feeling to make her parents proud and like yeah. 
the whole moment when like she she thinks she's going to get to move into the barn which is like a huge deal in her family and then her parents essentially slut shame her mm-hmm. um for moving out with ren and they take away her privilege of living in the barn and there's a there's a passage where she's basically like it's not about living in the barn it was about the fact that my dad was going to build me bookshelves and mm-hmm. i was going to go shopping for curtains with my mom and like they were going to let me get a cat and we were brainstorming names and it was all so fun and all she wanted was just to have that quality time with them and in those moments, she just really like pulled on my heartstrings as a character. And so I was bummed that like she had this whole situation with Ren going on that I felt kind of overshadowed the other very cool things that she had going for her. Yeah. And her parents' reaction to that was disturbing. Very disturbing. So they they let Melissa take shots at her and then they take yeah. shots at her and they're just kind of shitting on her for being with this older guy but they don't really do anything about this older guy who's preying on their daughter i don't understand that yeah it's definitely like her fault like there's no thought about the fact that he was involved which i think is unfortunately something that we see all the time in narratives that like men and boys are are often not expected to be accountable for their part in these situations and they are very much an equal part if not more than an equal part i jotted down some of the horrible things that spencer's family says to her in this moment um her older sister says i wish i never had to see you again her dad says you're under 18 which means we're legally responsible for you but if it were up to me i would kick you out of this house right now melissa tells her to rot in hell her mom says it's just despicable. And then Melissa calls her a whore. Mm-hmm. And I'm, it gives me no pleasure to use that word on this podcast, believe me. But I just want to communicate like just how much shaming is happening in this family. It's yeah. so messed up. It is so disturbing. It was gross to, to read that. Yeah. And then the whole family like drives away when there are ambulances and police cars at the house next door, knowing very well that this house belongs to Spencer's once best friend, Allie. Mm -hmm. And they know that Allie's been gone for three years. I have to believe that they think that there's a chance that all of this like chaos next door has to do with like a development in Allie's case. And the three of them get in the car and leave knowing that Spencer's home alone. They don't go to her. Like she literally, she's on the lawn alone crying. And it broke my heart. Yeah, that is, she's completely alone in this whole situation. Yeah. And like, it's complicated too, because Ren like comes and checks on her. And so then I'm like, oh, Ren's the only one who's there to support her. But he still sucks because he's inappropriate. Yeah. He behaves in a way that he shouldn't have. And uh, I didn't want to sympathize with him at all. And I'm mad at Sarah Shepard for making me feel like I should. Mm -hmm. I did not want to like him. I no. didn't really, but yeah, I didn't really like many of the dudes in this book. All right, so that's where we are with Spencer. Where should we go next? Next, we should go to Hannah. Okay. Oh, this is a tough one. <laughs> what are your general thoughts on getting reacquainted with Hannah? It was it was difficult to read. Her mom sucked. A lot of the parents in this book sucked. But her mom really was a mess. And Hannah, she's, uh, she gets the short end of the stick, really. I feel like she got the most abuse from Allie mm-hmm. and led to this whole eating disorder. And I, I also just want to say about it, like the book in general, that there were a lot of major like situations that just get glazed over. Mm-hmm. And I feel like are used as shock value and not really, I don't know, it's it it's kind of careless the way that some of these, um, like the disorder, the eating disorder, the self-harm, the underage drinking, all of this kind of stuff. It's just kind of thrown in there carelessly. But yeah. Yeah. And Hannah is the one doing a lot of that behavior. Yeah. So I agree with you. Um, listeners know that I've talked openly on the podcast before that I have a history of disordered eating and just like lots of weird food and body stuff, as I know a lot of listeners um, can relate to. And so eating disorder narratives in general are hard for me to read, mm-hmm. especially because when I was a teenager, like I didn't really know that that's what was going on. And so it's only as I've gotten older that I can look back and, and realize that for many years I was not being cool with my food and I was not taking good care of myself. And so it's hard for me to read about a character like Hannah who so clearly like knows what she's doing. She's very intentional about her binging and purging. And 
the scenes in which Sarah Shepard describes what she's doing are very graphic and it was very upsetting. And, and it was more than one time. Like we see her binging and purging several times. We see her processing what she's doing. Like we see her resisting it a little bit. Like she knows she shouldn't, but we still see her doing it. We see that she has triggers that lead her to do it. She obviously is very upset about the fact that her father has left and she um, feels that he has sort of left her in favor of a prettier teenage girl who he's now playing stepfather to. Um, and that's all really upsetting for her. But it, it, I agree with you. It felt very flippant. Mm-hmm. It was like, oh, you know, it was almost jokey. Like there's this narrative about like Kate's toothbrush. Kate is her her father's new stepdaughter. And uh, there's this whole like sort of inside joke that Hannah and Allie had about Hannah using Kate's toothbrush, which literally had Kate's name on it, to purge. Yeah. And that's really dark stuff. And there's no – at no point in the book do we really see – um, another character or even a Hannah really recognizing that what she's doing is so bad for her. Yeah. There's no like resolve to it. And I don't know if, I don't really know what happens in the next books, but there's, there's no kind of resolution to that. Mm-hmm. Well, and Hannah has this complex because when we meet her in seventh grade, she's kind of described as the dorkiest of the group. Um, she is the heaviest of the group. The other girls don't really seem to find her cute. And in the three years since Allie's disappearance, she's lost all this weight and she's suddenly become the it girl. Like she's almost replaced Allison as the queen bee of the school. And none of that has come from healthy behaviors. (laughs) And I think the best word to describe her or the best phrase to describe her is she's self-destructive. She obviously is dealing with this eating disorder. She's drinking a lot. She is confusing emotional intimacy with her boyfriend with physical intimacy. Mm-hmm. Um, she's really upset because this boy she's dating has apparently taken a virginity pledge. And she's she's frustrated by that because she basically is like, I haven't told him that I love him yet, but there's no better way to show somebody that you love them other than to have sex with them. And I'm not here to say that like you shouldn't have sex with somebody that you love or that you shouldn't have sex with somebody that you don't love. Um, I think like safe – consensual sex is great but I think that like the fact that she is so confused as to like how to express herself like she just I think like wants to experience that and isn't really thinking through what the impact on the relationship might be and she's not she's not giving him the opportunity to consent either like he does not want to have sex with her yeah definitely the way that she comes on to him Mm -hmm. if if it were flipped if it was a guy doing that it would yeah that would look really bad. And and then when he rejects her, she decides to steal his car. It's crazy. I don't know. Yeah. Also the shoplifting. And I have a lot to say about the shoplifting situation and about her run-ins with the police as a result of the shoplifting situation. So Hannah has a really bad habit of stealing things, even though she doesn't really need to because she can afford basically anything she wants. And when she's caught stealing at Tiffany's, she has to go to the police station because that's what happens when people steal things and they get called into the police station. Her mother basically is like, here, give me the bracelet and I'll hide it. And her mother is like in on it. She tells her that like, I'll, you know, I'll take care of everything. Don't worry. Later on, she actually buys her a replacement Tiffany's bracelet. Um, and then later on, even after that, Hannah has another run-in with the law because she is driving after that encounter with her boyfriend after he rejects her. She steals his car and she drives when she is really, really, really drunk. Mm -hmm. She crashes the car. She leaves it behind. It's this like really nice BMW. And again, she has to go to the police station and her mom is like, don't worry, I'll take care of it. And she sleeps with the police officer. Um, I think that what we see here is just like blatant privilege Mm -hmm. um, with the way that Hannah is interacting with law enforcement and – this would not happen if we were not dealing with like a rich white girl. Mm-hmm. Definitely. And that was just like very striking to me on this reread. And I, I don't think I would have picked up on that as a kid in 2006, as a white girl in 2006. But now I read it and I'm like, this this is only turning out okay for her because she is her. Like there are so many other people who with the exact same record would be like locked away as a teenager for many years. Yeah, it was a bit infuriating to read that in the way that her mom 
just kind of, I wouldn't say encourages it, but she definitely doesn't ever get punished for it. I mean, she goes and buys her the bracelet after she stole it. I don't understand that, but it was definitely infuriating because no one else would be able to get, like, I would never be able to get away with that. Yeah, she's definitely rewarded for her behavior. And she, like, there's no sense even as the book comes to a close that there's any sense of, like, remorse even. Like, she doesn't feel sorry for any of the things that have happened. Mm -mm. So that's Hannah. (laughs) (laughs) Great. So far it's going well. Um, who should we talk about next? <laughs> Let's do um, uh, Emily. Okay. Emily is an interesting one. I would say Emily, I'm trying to think, like, do I feel prepared to say that she's the least problematic? Um, I think I'm, I think I feel prepared to say that. Yeah. Like she's dealing with a lot of stuff, but she as an individual did not feel as problematic to me as the others. What do you think? I would agree with that. I would agree with that. There was a, there were a few moments, but I think she's definitely the most or the least problematic. So I don't like that uh, Emily's being gay is so scandalous, mm-hmm. right? That that we're using that as her big secret. That we're using it like as, as if it's shameful or that you know. Yeah, I mean, I think there's this huge shame component because we find out that Emily had romantic feelings for Allie that at the time she couldn't really process as romantic feelings. Like she just sort of thought like, this is what it is like to really like your best friend, to really love your best friend. And as she gets older and and we meet her now in high school, she's realizing that like, "Hmm, maybe I did feel differently about Allie than I, than I ever have about anybody else. Um, Until she meets Maya, who is a new girl who actually has moved into Allie's old house next to Spencer um, Emily has a boyfriend whose name is Ben, and they're on the swim team together. Swimming is kind of Emily's thing. And when Maya shows up, the things sort of are turned upside down for her, which that felt a little quick for me. It was like in three days, all of a sudden, like I'm quitting swim. I'm like yeah. changing my whole life because of you. Um, I loved that she had the experience of like falling in love so quickly for somebody because I think that that is such a special thing. And especially when you um, have maybe not had the opportunity to to explore certain elements of your personality it was really neat to like see her come into that part of herself but I I can see what you're saying that maybe there's this sense of her sexuality and her exploration of her sexuality feeling a little bit tokenized is that fair to say yeah definitely yeah and then she's she's whenever she realizes that maybe she is a lesbian she's like nothing about me says lesbian and then she goes on to list how she's not a stereotypical lesbian. And I was like, what is this? What is What are we doing? Yeah. (laughs) But other than that, I like Emily. Yeah, I did find an interesting blog post, which I will link in the show notes. um, And it's called Bisexuality in the Pretty Little Liars novels. And it's, um, it's, it's a full blog post that's devoted to Emily and her sexuality. And the author notes that the the term bisexual or bisexuality or bi, like none of those words are used throughout the series. Although we're kind of led to believe, and again, I've never read past the first book, but I guess that the action of the full series indicates that Emily is interested in not just girls. She also dates boys. And so there is some sense that she is bisexual, but nobody ever like uses that phrase. Yeah. Um, and then the author also talks about how I guess in the show she is she firmly like and openly identifies as a lesbian. And so there's some concern on the part of this blogger about the fact that like there's some bi erasure happening between the book and the TV show mm-hmm. because it sort of was like, quote, like easier for showrunners to portray a teen who is gay and, and who isn't bi because that's like too complicated. Um, and I wanted to share a couple of passages from this blog post just because I thought that it was really interesting. Okay. In real life, real girls sometimes have this problem. Some girls who are bi really have to figure out how to handle the fact that they've already struggled to get people to understand their same-sex attraction, and now they have to struggle to get people to understand that's not the whole story. But in the glittery, deadly worlds of Pretty Little Liars, some of the nuances of Emily's bisexual narrative are lost in the rollicking mystery plots, and the loss can make her queer identity feel erased. And although she is clearly depicted as feeling attracted to girls and guys, the character doesn't actually use the word bisexual to describe her identity. And maybe she's not bi, maybe she's pansexual or fluid or would prefer some other identity marker. 
but without seeing the character discuss it further, the takeaway for the reader is a bit muddled, and Emily's position on the spectrum of sexuality depends on how much of her story you read. But if Emily isn't finely shaded, she is equal. The other girl's complicated sexual and romantic relationships and their own secrets, eating disorders, explosive tempers, older men, are painted with the same broad, salacious, and admittedly entertaining brush as Emily's story. And it is undeniably something notable in queer representation to have a bisexual main character and the many queer girls she falls for in a best-selling young adult series. And Emily's impact on queer girls in popular culture is magnified many times over by the hit television show based on the series. Wow. Yeah, lots of information I just hit you with. Um, but I do think it's interesting. And I, I think that in 2006, Emily was a unique character in a lot of ways. I also want to talk a little bit about Maya, her love interest, who's really cool. Right. I think she was my favorite character. I like how laid back she was and um, sure of herself. She was, I, I think, yeah, the only Black character. Which brings me. <laughs> I know where we're going. Hit me with yeah, it. Yeah. So, so there was this. There was this sentence. I think it was in Spencer's section, where she's, mm-hmm. where she sees the blonde ponytail in Maya's window, and she thinks it's Allie, and she asks, "Wasn't wait? Wasn't the new family black?" And for some reason, that triggered me. I think mm. because. It really brings attention to how little diversity there really is in this book. Well, I mean, like racial diversity. And I don't know. I don't really, I don't know why I felt like alienated a little bit by that. It was like the way that it was written. It felt like, like if there were two white women telling a story or something, or if a white woman was telling another white woman a story and she like whispers the part about, oh, and she was black. You know, it felt like that. I don't know. Maybe I'm just too sensitive i don't know (laughs) but no i I mean i i'm so glad you shared that i think that's a a really interesting take but it it felt very um sort of disjointed i wonder if that was maybe part of it like because i don't i don't know that in emily's like initial introduction to maya or even in their first couple of conversations like there's no indication i don't think that maya is black and not that we need that to be like, you know, the first thing we learn about her. But I also think in 2021, we're trying to get to the point where like, it's okay to acknowledge somebody's race yeah. as part of like the way that they present themselves. And it almost felt to me like I was like, oh, so this is how we're finding out mm-hmm. that our family are of are like people of color. Like, it was just weird that 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 was sort of how it came up or maybe that was just like the first time that it grabbed my attention yeah definitely I think whenever they first or whenever Sarah first um describes Maya she says that her skin tone is tawny I think and then Mm. I think the only the first indication that they are black is in that section I was just talking about but um yeah it feels weird like it's a weird way to to learn that information yeah it is it was it was Uh, yeah it was um jarring a little bit and then you get later into the story about emily's parent or emily's mom not liking that emily's hanging out with maya and then racism enters the Mm -hmm. story and i was just like whoa okay whoa she's like okay so my mom doesn't like me hanging out with maya because she's black and then that's literally it there's no mention of it again, I don't believe, and it's not confronted or resolved. And maybe it's just because it's the first book in the series, but it still felt, I don't know, painful. Yeah, I mean, Emily's Emily's parents are like not happy that Emily's hanging out with Maya. And at first, Emily thinks it's because they think that she's gay and they're like, you know, concerned about their daughter's sexuality, which is like a whole other conversation, obviously. But then Emily's mom says, there are just so many cultural differences with her. And I just don't understand what you and Maya have in common anyway. And who knows about her family? Who knows what they could be into? And then a couple of paragraphs later, it says, Mrs. Fields wasn't upset because she thought Maya was gay. She was upset because Maya and the rest of her family were black. That was another one of those things that felt like it was just put in the story for shock value and um, to move the plot along. I don't know. It just felt flippant, like you said. Yeah, nobody learns anything from no. it. Nobody like grows as a as a result of it. Nope, nothing. 
Okay, so Emily's life, pretty problematic. Emily herself, not really problematic, like figuring a lot out, I would say. But like not in my estimation, and listeners, correct me if I'm wrong, because I might be. In my estimation, Emily generally as a human being, as a character in this book, not as offensive as some of the others. Like lots of offensive things swirling around her for sure, Mm -hmm. but her behavior less so. Yeah, I I think, yeah, she's definitely my – or of the four, she's definitely my favorite. I think her and Maya's romance was my favorite. It was the most sizzling. But yeah, I, I would agree that she's the least problematic. So that brings us to Arya. <laughs> Arya. And and Arya was the one that I think I was the most aware of, if only because Lucy Hale is like probably the most famous coming out of the series. I think like she's at least in my orbit, like I recognize her more so than some of the other cast members and she plays Arya. Arya at first like seems pretty cool. Like she was kind of nerdy, carries around her stuffed animals and she's in seventh grade. The other girls tease her for it. But then she moves to Iceland because like as one does, your family moves to Iceland and then you come back and you're cool. You're like transformed and you're you're like intellectual and you're cultured and you're mysterious and you don't need friends is basically like how Arya comes back to Rosewood. What was your first impression of Arya getting to know her again on this reread? Well, I think whenever I first read it back way back then, I think she was my favorite because I was kind of, she's kind of the alternative girl. Um, and I was kind of one of those pop punk kids. But coming back, I think that she's definitely more childish than I remember and a lot more thirsty than I remember for Ezra. Mm. Yeah. So thirsty, great word for <laughs> Ezra. Ezra is her English teacher, everyone. Um, and here we have another situation with a like an older man who I think Sarah Shepard wants me to find mysterious and sexy and dangerous, but like not so dangerous, but who I am struggling to treat as anything other than predatorial mm-hmm. and inappropriate. Even more so because I don't know, I don't really know exactly how old Ezra is and exactly how old Ren is, but I have to believe that Ezra is like probably a couple of years older. He has to be like mid-20s. He's teaching at this private school and he meets Arya at a bar. Like that's their first interaction because Arya's back in Rosewood and like the only thing she wants to do that will like hold up to her coolness meter is like go drink at a bar because that's what she used to do in Europe. And she meets this hot guy. They make out in the bathroom. She like doesn't really think much of it, although she's really into him and she like hopes they can hang out again. And they do hang out again, but in her English classroom <laughs> once school starts again. Uh, um, I mean, I think that this this situation did feel a little bit more clear cut and that like highly inappropriate yeah. like for you to have a relationship with your English teacher. At least with Ren, it was like maybe he's not quite as old. Like he and Spencer, I don't know. They seemed like they were on slightly more equal footing to me. But this dynamic between Ezra and, and Arya was so messed up and he was in control of the whole thing. Mm-hmm. Like they did continue to see each other a few times after they made the connection that he was her teacher. But like it was only when he felt like it. Like there were times when she, when he didn't want to see her and he literally wouldn't even let her into his apartment. Yeah. And I'm not here to say that he should have let her into his apartment but I am suggesting that like anytime anyone that you're in a relationship with holds that much power over the degree to which you are like interacting and being intimate with each other, like that's a major red flag. Definitely. Yeah. And Ezra's, the way that he handles the situation is, well, obviously inappropriate. But so after she realizes that he's her teacher, she goes to him and is suggesting that they still pursue a relationship and he says we shouldn't do this because i could get in trouble not right not because this is messed right up. right right <laughs> not because this is inappropriate this conversation is over you should leave my classroom and never come back i don't know his defense is i could get in trouble that's so awful <laughs> really messed up logic and then uh, aria i found her her little um let's make Ezra jealous game really childish and it shouldn't have worked. It really shouldn't have worked, but it does. 
Yeah, she like makes out with this other guy in English class Mm -hmm. in an effort to make her teacher jealous so that he'll want to hang out with her. And like, if you kissed somebody, even like a quick peck in an English class in my high school, like you would absolutely be getting detention or like something would happen. But I love that she like literally just like grabs this guy's face and makes out with him. (laughs) And Ezra's reaction is like, oh no, I'm jealous now. Yeah, let me call her and invite her over. What? Right, like you were right, I was wrong. Like, no, this is so wrong. So wrong. Like that's it's so childish. He should recognize how childish that is and not pursue. But yeah, he's complicated. I don't know. Yeah, and Arya's secret is tricky too. Um oh, her yeah. secret is that her dad had an affair with one of his students. He's a professor. And that seems to kind of be what precipitated their move to Iceland. Arya is the only one in her family who knows. And Allie knew also, like she was in on the secret as well. And the fact that like her like her dad knows that she knows and seems to like periodically check in and be like, you okay with everything? <laughs> and she's like, uh, I guess. And I don't know. It just, again, like he, this is another situation of a man who is acting predatorial and like, there's an imbalance of power in a sexual relationship in which he is presumably having sex with a student mm-hmm. of his. And it just seems like there's – this is like rampant in this community. Yeah. This this parallel with her and her father is crazy. And then the fact that he's asking her to hold it or keep his secret is just so problematic. <laughs> yeah. We're just all holding on to men's secrets about their sex lives, oh, yeah. about their like – sexual transgressions and lies to their partners and yeah teen girls should totally be responsible for that oh my god (laughs) so yeah Arya um I had high hopes for her but she let me down I feel like she's gonna get really interesting in the in the um subsequent books though I think so um I I can't tell you I don't know um (laughs) but I did want to bring up this one thing about her the I think it was their last scene with her and Ezra where I don't even know. Oh, no. Yeah, he had her phone and he mm. saw the message from A and they fight, physically fight. What was that? Oh, yeah. What was that? She bit him and then he threw a book at her. I don't <laughs> Somehow I blocked that out and I don't even know how. I don't. I don't. It. It. I was like, what? You have to go back and read that. It was, I don't understand where that came from, but they get violent with each other. And I don't really know how it's going to play out in the next book, but that's not okay. Yeah. Anytime somebody checks your phone, also a red flag. I'm just going to make that generalization right here, right now. Like, just don't stand for it. Mm -hmm. Definitely. Yeah. That was bad. And and we haven't really spent a lot of time talking about Allison directly, although we have touched on her throughout this conversation about the other four characters. Allie disappeared at the beginning of the book when they were in seventh grade. And unfortunately, at the end, we find out that her body has been discovered under like a, like a concrete tennis court or something behind her old house. And so any like expectation or any thought that she might still be alive, those hopes are pretty much dashed at the end of the book. But in in all of the chapters between those two um, major milestones of the book, the characters are getting texts and notes um, all signed with the letter A. And because these notes and these texts and these letters and the emails, like all of these correspondences, they all pretty much um, like reveal secrets about them that only Allie knew or they speak to like things that they're doing in real time that are breaking the rules. And so they're all like, is Allie back? Like, has she always been around? What's going on? And then in the end, they're like, oh, no, she's she's dead. But even at her funeral, they all get a message. So they all kind of like reunite at their funeral because they, they weren't really hanging out until then. And as her whole like family is grieving her, they get a message, all four of them, that says, I'm still here, bitches, and I know everything, which is so Gossip Girl, mm-hmm. by the way. And that's that's basically how we end the book. Uh, and I did like just in, in doing research before you and I chatted, I like came across a couple of spoilers about like the identity of A and what actually happened to Allison that were sort of just like confusing because I, I haven't read or watched like the whole series. But I am kind of like into the premise of like the way that she 
disappears and and how all of these other pieces come together. I think the um, the sort of extra layer of a murder mystery, of like a disappearance mystery on top of this sort of like wealth porn that we see in similar series from this era, like that's interesting to me. And I, I like that extra dynamic, but it, it's frustrating that it's uh, it's the backdrop of a lot of really problematic hurtful, offensive, triggering storylines for these characters. Well, with the show and finding out who A is, after that, it gets it gets wild. It's hard to keep up with. I still don't remember what happens or how it happens or who A is, honestly. I don't remember. It's hard to keep up with it. Well, according to Wikipedia, there's something with a twin. Like Allison had a twin. I don't know what? if that's exactly what they did on the show. Yeah. In all the interviews I found with Sarah Shepard, it seems like they made a lot of changes um, oh. to the plot on the show. Like she talks about how she really likes what they did with the show because I guess like the characters felt really authentic to her. Like she talks about how she she feels like she was watching the girls that she wrote about, but they made a lot of changes as far as like how the plots played out on screen. Mm -hmm. But I think that what I found on Wikipedia and who knows how, how well this was explained on Wikipedia. Um, I guess Allie had a twin and her name was Courtney and the other girls like thought that they were friends with Allie, but they were friends with Courtney what? and like Allie actually does die. I don't know. I, I'm sorry, listeners, if this is all wrong, but that's <laughs> what I discovered in my uh, in my attempt to understand sort of the overall trajectory of the book series. That's mind-blowing. I did not know that at all. There you go. Now you don't have to read the rest of the books, and I don't think you were planning to anyway. Thank you so much for that. <laughs> <laughs> On the whole, Joya, how do you feel like this reread of Pretty Little Liars held up to your memory of reading it as a teen? Um, it absolutely did not. I, I think I enjoyed it as a teen, did not enjoy this as an adult. Well, I, I enjoyed making fun of it. I'm sorry. Th that might have been mean. I enjoyed laughing at it. I'm sorry. <laughs> <laughs> you'll get there. You'll get there. Just keep keep dialing it back and you'll get where you're coming from. But no, this was fun. Um, but it, it did not hold up, in my opinion. Yeah, I just read um, the last episode that listeners will have heard when this episode drops is about the second book in the Click series. Hmm. And so I read like two of these sorts of um, like teen, tween, wealth, click, socialite books back to back. And it's been kind of interesting. It's been as problematic as both of these worlds are. It has been sort of fun in a weird way to be like caught in them right now. But I would say Pretty Little Liars, like there's a lot of issues here. And uh, I think if anything, it speaks to the way that we as consumers of media have changed sort of like our tolerance for like different ways of approaching topics like eating disorders, like sexuality, like self-harm, like racism, all of these other things that you and I have talked about today. Like we just as as consumers in 2021, like we don't stand for that. Yeah kind of bullshit like the way that people did in 2006 and that's a good thing yeah exactly for me it was fun to read about the main line like it's always fun to read about rich people even though like their privilege is like so disgusting like a fun escapist kind of vibe but this book I felt like there were just so many issues um with the way that issues were portrayed mm -hmm. so that's kind of my overall thought. I'd love to know what else you've been reading lately that you would recommend to our listeners. Well, right now I'm reading Full Disclosure by Cameron Garrett. It's about a HIV positive teenage girl who falls in love and is, is exploring the idea of sex. But there's also some blackmail involved. and It's really great so far. I love it. She has a book coming out May 18th, I believe. Um, called uh, Off the Record, and I'm really looking forward to getting that. I would recommend all of her books, honestly. I will include links to those recommendations in the show notes for this episode, along with the link to Pretty Little Liars. And as I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, it is the very exciting book birthday of your book, Excuse Me While I Ugly Cry, and I can't wait for you to tell listeners a little bit more about it. Yay! Yes. So, um, excuse me while I ugly cry, just give you a quick little blurb. It's about a chronic list maker who writes lists about everything, her desires, her fears, her guilt, 
um, in a single red journal that goes missing. Um, it gets swapped, <gasps> right? It gets swapped with Carter Bennett's journal. And before they can trade back, he unfortunately loses it. And even more <laughs> unfortunately, she ends up getting blackmailed into completing a to-do list of all her fears. Um, so her and Carter journey through all of her fears and they grow together as individuals and as a couple. So there's lots of love and there's lots of courage. There's also themes of race and chronic illness. And so it's really swoony, but it's also kind of deep. Oh my gosh, I'm so into it. I'm so happy for you. Congratulations on your book being on shelves right now. Can you believe when this episode goes live, your book is going to be officially out there in the world? I'm so excited. I can't I can't even wait. I can't. <laughs> I like to imagine like what do you think you're going to be doing that day? Like will you be ugly crying? Like what like what do you think you're going to be doing to celebrate? I feel like I'm going to be eating cake. I I think I'm going to get a party hat and just have a party, you know. <laughs> I love that. Well, I will be over here having a party remotely right here with you. I know that our SSR family is going to be joining you. SSR listeners, again, that is called Excuse Me While I Ugly Cry. I will include a link to that in the show notes for this episode. Get yourself a copy. Support Joya. Joya, it has been such a joy talking with you. It was so fun getting to know you. And um, I really appreciate you journeying into this very weird, very problematic world with me. Yes, this has been so fun. Thank you so much for having me. Of course. Bye. Bye. SSR is part of the Frolic Podcast Network. Find more podcasts you'll love at frolic.media slash podcasts. Thanks so much for listening to the SSR Podcast. Check out our website at www.ssrpodcast.com for show notes and other information. And be sure to connect with us on social media for updates on upcoming episodes, behind the scenes inside scoop, and some good old fashioned book talk. Find us at SSR Pod on Instagram and Twitter and search SSR Podcast on Facebook to join the group. To reach out directly, you can send me an email at hellossrpod at gmail.com. If you're loving the show, it would mean so much if you could subscribe, leave a five-star review, and share your thoughts with a comment. And don't forget to tell your friends, too. In the meantime, happy reading. I'll see you next time on the SSR Podcast.